continue tonight in our in-depth study through the book of beginnings. I think certainly these first couple of chapters are really foundational, not only to understand what the rest of the Bible will present to us, but just to understand God's view of, of man and his creation and yet his deliverance that he wants to bring us. Tonight in chapter 3, we are given God's accounting of the present condition of man's fall. We get to learn about Satan's devices. We, we learn God's heart towards sin. We find that man instinctively knows right from wrong. He was created with that ability. He immediately tries to hide from God what he knows is to be wrong before the Lord. We, we see God's power over all. And we are given this amazing promise that God has a solution for man at his worst. We will learn, I think, in these few uh, verses, I think 24 in all, that um, contrary to popular belief, man is not evolving upward, but rather he has suffered from a devastating fall, which because of it has left his basic human nature, not good, but evil, has left his innermost being disoriented because of sin cut off from God. The Bible calls it being spiritually dead and heading for judgment. Up to now, and it's only been a few weeks, the, the most often used phrase in our scriptures have been, and God looked and saw all they had made, and he said it was good. Seven times it was good. The only not good thing was found in chapter 2 when Adam was found to be without a mate. And God said it's not good that man should be alone. And we talked about how God made us to share our lives. When he brought Eve to Adam, he for the first time declared, not just good, very good. Adam and Eve were a match made in heaven. They had an ideal marriage. Adam did not need to hear all about the other men she could have married. And Eve didn't need to hear about the way his mother used to cook dinner. It would have been great at the end of chapter 2 if we would have just read <clears throat> excuse me, and Adam and Eve lived happily ever after. And that would have been wonderful, but it didn't turn out that way. There's a chapter 3 that changed everything. We read in verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? We are introduced here to a character, the serpent, who comes out, out of nowhere. And up to this point, we haven't any kind of a hint as to who he might be. This serpent wastes no time to, to go after the kill shot, if you will, heading for Eve and to Adam in an attempt to disrupt this creation of God. Who is this serpent? Where did he come from? Fortunately, like your teacher might have told you when you were in class, the answers are in the back of the book. And if you go to Revelation chapter 12, we will read about this devil that is cast out of heaven, this great dragon that has been thrown out, this old serpent, the devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world. He is cast to the earth, and the angels that followed cast out with him. So we are told very clearly who this devil is, this serpent. I think anyone in a in their right minds, if you are interested in seeking after the truth, would want to know 
how in the world did man get in such a mess? The horrors we see in the world, be it politics or commercialism or the Western culture, is that all it is? No, no, no. It is far deeper than that, and it goes far further back than that. We were introduced here to whom we are told in the book of Revelation is a fellow named the devil. The word devil means, diabolos means slanderer or, or, uh, or accuser. The word Satan is just a word for adversary. He is against you. And the old serpent or the old snake that we now meet. I heard a story a while back I thought was kind of interesting about a woman that was married to a very miserly husband. And she, he would never really buy her anything, but one day she said, I'm going shopping. And he said, all right, just window shopping, no buying. Two hours later, she came home with this beautiful, expensive new dress. What happened, he said to her in anger. And she said, well, I tried it on and I was tempted. And I heard the devil say, that looks beautiful on you. He said, well, then you're supposed to say, get behind me, Satan. And she said, I said that. And he said, it looks good from here, too. <laughs> and so I bought it. Where does this devil come from? Where did he come from? The Bible, again, fills in the gaps. It is, after all, Bible study, and the best way to interpret the Bible is to use the Bible. Let the Bible interpret itself. If you turn in your Bible sometime to Ezekiel chapter 28, you will read there the first 10 verses of, of so of a prophecy to a prince or a ruler of Tyre. And the first 10 verses there signify this man who was filled with himself. He thought one day he would be like a god, and then as the Lord speaks to him through the prophet, he subsequently will meet God's judgment. But then beginning in verse 11 of Ezekiel 28, um, the tide churns. It goes from a prince or a ruler to the king, to the melech, as it is written. Historically, this king... Edo Baal II was a ruler in this important kind of metro, uh, Mediterranean seaport village in the ancient world. But then in verse 11, the prophecy to the king, the actual guy, stops. And God begins through the prophet to speak to the king behind this prince, someone with greater authority than the ruler in Tyre, the one behind his rule, if you will. And when you get to um, chapter 28, and I'll read to you just a couple of, of verses there, if you if you let me. He said this, Son of man, take up a lamentation to the king, against the king. Say to him, thus saith the Lord, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then he lists a bunch of the stones. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared in you from the day you were created. You are the anointed cherub who covers, I established you. You are on the holy mountain of God, walking back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. But by the abundance of your trading, you have become filled with violence and you have sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of of the fiery stones. And God calls this, this created angel, he calls him a cherub, a chief 
angel, perfect in beauty, full of wisdom, was in the garden of God in the heavenly sense, was created by the Lord for worship. Connecting the dots, you begin to learn that this exalted angel was God's chief angel and chief worship leader in glory. And however long he held that position, he was in that position. And then at some point, he, as well as the angels, as well as man, is given a choice. And this beautiful angel began to become jealous of God. He didn't like the worship directed at God. He wanted the worship directed to him. He wanted to be God, and iniquity was found in him. And he was put out of heaven and really cast from that position. And his name was changed to Satan, to liar, deceiver, from Lucifer. If you go to Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Again, the first 10 verses of that prophecy are spoken to a man, the king of Babylon. <clears throat> but then Ezekiel, or sorry, then Isaiah, just like Ezekiel, I should say, turns to speak to the power behind the throne. And again, he begins to speak to him about, you know, how he has fallen. And again, the turning is from the individual to the power behind that individual. It says in verse 12 of Isaiah 14, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut to the ground, you who weaken the nations? Because you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountains of the congregation on the further side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And the Lord said, but you will be brought down into the to Sheol and down into the lowest pit. And people will gaze at you and consider you and say, is this the man who made the earth to tremble, shaking kingdoms and making the world as a wilderness while destroying cities, not opening the, the, the house of the prisoners? And then it goes on to describe some of his influence. But there is those five I wills. Sometime in heaven, this beautiful, created, worshipful angel decided that he would go off on his own, would want to try to take God's throne, take God's seat. And again, he was placed <laughs> on that you can't be here anymore list. His five I wills were attached to his rebellion, if you will. Jesus quotes out of Isaiah 14 in Luke chapter 10, where we'll get there in a little while where the 70 disciples are sent out in, in Jesus' name to, to minister to those uh, who are under the influence of the enemy. And they come back to Jesus and said, Lord, it's amazing. Even the devils are subject to us through your name. <clears throat> Jesus said, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. And he went on to describe what we read there in the book of Isaiah as well. So, his five I wills kind of introduced the problem up to this point. And, and this fall from, from heaven was before man was created. Um, there was harmony and glory. There was one mind. There was one will. It was God's will. But now, as Satan rebels, there's this second will introduce a dissonant kind of a note, a rogue. He talks a third of the angels that God created to fall from heaven with him, and they are put out. A star of God, his servant, who chose to lunge for God's throne and is put down. And now he shows up here in the Garden of Eden, where God has said everything is very good, 
And his first work is to seek to destroy what the Lord has done. Sin did not begin upon the earth. Sin began in heaven. The mystery of iniquity did not originate in the heart of a human being. It originated in the heart of an angelic being of the highest order. Sin entered Eden fully grown, introduced there by Satan, disguised as a serpent. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> had this cough all day. I don't have COVID, don't worry. <laughs> but we have about 30 people in the church that do right now. So you guys just keep me in prayer. None of them are very sick. <clears throat> like this. <clears throat> but they all have, uh, they have to stay home. Three chapters into the book of Genesis, we run into this serpent for the first time. Three chapters from the end of your Bibles, we will see him for the last time. In the meantime, his wicked work is found on almost every page. But remember these chapters, Revelation chapter 12, <coughs> Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, will help us to understand the, the verse here before us. Now the serpent shows up in the garden. I know we've only done three verses. Don't worry. <laughs> we should make it to the end. Has God indeed said that you cannot eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it nor touch it unless you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, but she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. This serpent is different because he can speak, the Hebrew word is nashach. Nashach means snake or shining one. He spoke words to Eve that she understood. Having failed to, <clears throat> I guess, accomplish his agenda in heaven with God or a majority of the angels, he now quickly advances upon God's creation, Adam and Eve. Up to now, God's word has prevailed. What the Lord had said was followed, and it became prevalent in our study through the first couple of chapters. His word spoke the world into existence, and here it is still his word that now is being challenged by this serpent, this fallen angel, this cherub that once had a prominent place in God's plans, Satan the serpent. We read in verse 1 that he is more cunning. The word is crafty. <laughs> It is certainly used in a bad sense. Satan is not honest. Satan uses trickery and deception in hopes of having you rebel against God. He makes sin look inviting rather than disgusting. He comes with logic and, and he seeks to have you desire what is abhorrent and needs to be avoided. He was full of wisdom before he fell. 
<clears throat> but now his wisdom is twisted and warped and bent by sin and headed for judgment. He's no friend of yours. He's an enemy of God and of his people. Notice in verse 1 towards the end here that his first attack <clears throat> is on God's word. Has God indeed or really said? It is the first question found in the Bible, Satan challenging the word of God to Eve, and in doing so, the way that he asked the question, he certainly is misrepresenting God's heart, turning his positive directions for life into kind of negative prohibition. God won't give you what you want, when indeed God was keeping them from the one thing they didn't need. The implication, very obvious, and he uses it a lot, he questions God's love. Would a good God, <clears throat> a God of love, keep something from his creation? Has God really said, you can't eat of every tree? And Eve said, no. We can all eat, but only the one tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we eat of that, we die. And the serpent pivots to flatly deny what God has said. He begins by questioning God's word. And then he begins to deny what God has said. You will not surely die. You'll eat and be like God. Paul would write years later to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. You know, God, God has taught us the enemy lies. And he'll tell you whatever he needs to tell you to get you to walk away from the things of God. His work today follows the same kind of lines. Challenge God's word questions God's love, misinterpret and misrepresent God's word, and then just flatly deny it so that you might be willing to turn away. The only defense you have spiritually is God's word and his spirit, that you might be able to stand on his word. It is, it is our protection. Satan goes after God's word and seeks to undermine it. If you are around theological circles today, there are many folks who are writing books as well. You can find them, go to any bookstore. Um, questioning which parts of the Bible are believable, which parts did the Lord write, and which parts are inspired, and which are not. Talking to you about lost books that needed to be included in other writings that you don't have. Because the, the devil is still alive, and it's the old game. He doesn't have any tricks to change. These have been working really good. Why change when you're doing so well? At the core of his attack with Eve is always the same thing with us. Can God really be trusted? Can I rely on his word? Is he faithful to it? Is it good for us? When we study from our study, or I should say what we learn from our study is that God gives man freedom. And he has given man dominion, but there are limitations. Adam and Eve were responsible to the Lord. They could do everything they might have wanted with some restraints that the Lord had imposed for their own benefit. And as a result, they would love him by obeying him and listening to what he had to say. <clears throat> Satan sought to direct Eve's eyes to the forbidden fruit. Help her to see that it looked good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. It might very well help to make me wise, and I would desire to be wise. He persuaded her to act independent of God's counsel, 
and do her own thing. Now, many people would not dispute that the Bible was written by the Lord, and they might even say to you, I believe the Bible. But those are the very same people that when it comes to, to choices, decide if they believe God or not and go the way that they feel that they should. They aren't guided by the scriptures, which are so often unacceptable to them. They just set it aside. He doesn't want you as smart as him, Eve. He is worried about you, that you'll be like him. He's not fair. He really doesn't love you. If you believe me, just for a moment instead of God, you can have it all. But Satan's well-worn path is always the same, and he'll do the same with you. Question God's word, contradict God's word, and substitute for God's word. Always looking to, defa to defame the character of God in man's eyes. Always looking to, to chase you away from the things of God. It goes from, from doubt to, to denial to delusion. You will be like God. The word is Elohim. You'll be like God. Putting in Eve's mind the same daring thought that had entered his mind in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. It had transformed him from an angel of light to the devil himself. Well, Eve thought it over and decided she would eat. She would sow it to her husband, her new insights and wisdom. She made a miserable bargain. And he went along with it. Notice in, in verse uh, 6, these steps that she took. She saw the tree. Good for food. It was pleasant to the eye. It was desirable to make one wine. Secondly, she took of that which she saw. Thirdly, she ate of that which she took. And fourthly, she passed it along to Adam. Eve took four steps. Adam took one. Unfortunately, Eve is blamed by everyone for the fall. Yet the Bible clearly places the blame solely upon Adam. Why? From sinner to seducer, Eve was taken in by the lies of the enemy. Adam willingly obeyed what God had directly told him not to do. How he had communicated that to his wife, I don't know. But he had it on firsthand information from the Lord not to eat. And so his eyes were open. He wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived. In fact, you read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, that Adam was deceived, but uh, was not deceived, but the woman was deceived in the transgression. She was taken in. Adam knew better, and yet he stepped forward. <clears throat> Eve was talked into it, fooled by the devil, thought she was doing a good thing. Not Adam. He was just plainly disobedient. So when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, you read these words, but in Adam... All die. Not in Eve, but in Adam. While in Christ, everyone can be made alive. The question becomes, why have this tree there to begin with? Would it not have been better without it altogether? How, and the question is answered by this. How would you know if you really love the Lord if there's nothing for you to obey, if there's no, nothing for you to dis demonstrate your commitment to him? How would that be good for you? How would you know where you stood? The, the angels at some point were given a choice. And so are we. The tree was desirable, so is sin. The love of God demands obedience because we know him and his desire for us. 
He gave them all the trees but one. One choice to make. God made it as easy as he could. Satan would tempt Jesus in the wilderness as he began his earthly ministry. We looked at it last week. Change the stones into bread. Use your power to feed your flesh. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Draw people to you by the pride of life. Show them what you can do. Bow down and worship me, and you can have it all. And Jesus every time said, but the Bible says, God's word tells us. And he stood fast. Well, we are told in verse 7 that the eyes after they ate of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and began to sew fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Certainly the darkest day in human history. And everything that is terrible and that will follow in the weeks, months, and ages to come can be traced back to this fateful day. Everything after chapter 3, verse 6, is the result of the fall of man and even God's recu operation that will cost him so much were directly motivated by the dilemma that man found himself in. Into the bloodstream of the human race comes a virus that will infect everyone that is born. A virus far worse than any known to man. It is the SIN virus. It is absolutely fatal. It will separate your life from God unless there's a cure. But here is the introduction to sin. God had warned Adam about eating. Back in chapter 2, I think verse 17. The day you eat of you shall surely die. Not physically, but spiritually you would lose that relationship that you had with God. By one man's sin, Paul said to the Romans, sin, by one man's sin and uh, entered in the world, and death came by that sin, and so death has passed on to all men, for all has sinned. Sin entered, death entered, death spread, death reigned, and Adam, who was kind of the federal head of humanity, fell, and we all fall. He's the first Adam, which is why Jesus in the Bible is called the second Adam who came to fix all that the first Adam had ruined. How bad is sin? How serious are its consequences? It is so bad that the Bible tells us we are blinded to how serious sin is and how eternal its consequence. That we will even try to replace the word sin with something less brutish or less coarse, if you will, We'll call it a hang-up, or personal baggage, or the Irish temper, or Italian hot-bloodedness. <laughs> the Bible just calls it sin. All men are dead as a result, dead unless God helps us. That's how horrible this day was. Paul will write to the Ephesians, You, God, has made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sin. Notice in verse 8 that the Lord came out in the cool of the afternoon to meet with him. I love the fact that before sin entered the picture, that God had a regular time of fellowshipping with man. It, it paints such a lovely picture, doesn't it? In the cool of the afternoon, as the day was winding down, the Lord came to walk. 
The word halach in, 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 in Hebrew means, means to, to move amongst them. It's, it's one of those wonderful pictures of a, a habitual kind of activity. So it seems like the Lord daily came out to just have fellowship with his creation. That's, for, after all, why we were created, to have fellowship with God. Yet at this particular day, the joyous time that everyone had looked forward to now was anything but a joy for Adam and for Eve. They hid themselves. Why? Well, according to verse 17 of chapter 2, when they heard the words, the day you eat, you're going to die, they understood what they had done. They went to hide from God. Now think about that. How are you going to hide from God? Good luck with that. David would later write in the Psalms, where can I flee from your spirit? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I, if I take wings and fly to the uttermost parts of the earth, they're there. I can't get away from you. Jonah, Jonah tried running from God. He knew the scriptures very, very well. He knew what he had done was wrong. He quoted several Psalms while he was laying in that belly of the great fish. We do that. We ignore what we know when we sin. And Jonah did that too. There must have been a great joy amongst the demons when the news came out that the father of lies had triumphed so spectacularly over these creation or these creatures made in the image and in the likeness of God. But notice what happens to Adam and Eve since this is our first look at sin. The sin was shameful, and they experienced shame. They were aware of their evil. They had always been aware of good, but now their conscience was activated, and it showed them that they were naked. I suspect, and I don't know, that they might have been clothed in light before. You know, the Bible tells us in more than one places that the Lord covers us in light as a garment, so I don't know, but if not just in the presence of God, the goodness of God, that's really all that we and they needed to, to know. Jesus was transformed there in Mark chapter uh, 9, I think it is, and his raiment was shining exceedingly white as snow. Uh, no fuller on earth could whiten them like that. But it was that glow, that, that awareness, that, that, if you will, presence of the Lord that was like raiment or clothes to him. But now in sin, that light has gone out. The physical things have come into prominence, if you will, and naked and ashamed was the knowledge of which they had you know, sold their place in, in paradise for. They, their fellowship with God was, was, was hawked away for this information. Conscious of their shame, Adam and Eve at once endeavored to hide themselves and cover their nakedness with fig leaves their actions literally being the, the beginning of man's religion. Let me do whatever it takes to cover my sin, to hide my shim, to take care of my guilt with the work of my own hands. It didn't work then, it doesn't work now. The fig leaves would never cover sin from the piercing eyes of God. Like I said, they felt a need to hide, to flee, from the God who loved them and came to seek them every day. So the Lord God, verse 9, calls out to Adam, and he says to him, Adam, or just says, where are you? And he answered, I, 
I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I have told you, have commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, the woman that you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And, and the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Where are you? Certainly God did not lack knowledge and he didn't need GPS coordinates. <laughs> this is one of those self-revelatory questions. Where are you, Adam? What are you doing, Pat? God knew where he was hiding, but God sought to bring him face to face with his guilt to give him an opportunity. He could confess. He could repent. So important that you read this in the right, I think in the right light is, this isn't the voice of a, a arresting officer. This is the voice of the brokenhearted father. Abelmar, what did you do? It was his choice. Jesus would years down the road weep over Jerusalem, for he knew that his rejection or their rejection of him would bring tremendous suffering in, in, in natural ways. The, the suffering, the overthrow, the wars, the murders, the, the despair of the nation. He wept because he knew what their choices would bring to them. God's heart was broken. It is certainly true that instinctively we hide when we know we have sinned. It's natural. Kids do it. Adults are just better at it. Kind of part of our makeup, right? If we're not going to turn to the Lord. Adam said he hid because he was naked, but that was no surprise. He'd been naked since chapter 2. But there was no self-consciousness there. There was a selflessness. He loved his wife. He loved the Lord. His eyes were elsewhere. Now born into sin, sin brought a great self-awareness. Isn't that something? Always looking out for me. Number one, what do I want? What do I get? It is why we strive so to make ourselves presentable, so worried about what we're going to wear who will be there? What, what, what will I look like? What did I say? And Adam and Eve now stand ashamed to be in God's presence. Who told you you were naked? God knew the answer, but again, come on, Adam, cough it up. But it isn't so easy. You know, man in, in his creation by the Lord was made as the Lord in a trinity, a tripartite uh, being. He was spirit living in a body but possessing a soul. Paul mentions it in chapter 5 of Thess uh, Thessalonica. I pray that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless until the coming of Jesus. We are distinct because we have minds and spirits. By the way, animals have souls. If you read Genesis chapter 2, the word creatures there is the Hebrew word nefesh, and the word nefesh is the word for soul. But it doesn't allow for um, consciousness or self-awareness. Plants don't have any of that. So you have a body that you live in. You are a spirit. God breathed life into this body, but you have a consciousness. You have the capacity to know God, to know his will, to communicate with him in prayer, to reason, to choose to have logical thought, to have worship, even as we did tonight. Before the fall, that's the order. It was spirit, soul, living in a body. But the minute 
the fall took place, the inversion took place as well. Man was made a spirit, placed in the body, given a conscience or a, or, a, or a soul to communicate with God, but, but sin brought death to that relationship. It left you in a body with a soul dead in the spirit to God. So you now had physical experiences and, and, and the desires of the flesh that dominate your life, but you have no ability or strength in a spiritual sense because you've been cut off from the Lord. You are out of touch with God. Paul would write to the Ephesians, in times past we walked according to the weather vane of this world, or literally wherever the wind blow you went. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the children of disobedience, among you, whom you had your, your conversation, your lifestyle, in times past, driven by the lusts of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of your flesh and of your mind, you were by nature the children of wrath, dead spirit, out of touch with God. So when Nicodemus came to Jesus there in John 3 and wanted to know what he could do to please the Lord, Jesus went right to the heart of the issue. You need to reconnect your spiritual life. You need a new spirit. You need a new heart. You need to be born again spiritually. Like your physical birth gave you a body and a soul, your spiritual birth will reattach you to that life that you can have with God that was lost when you sinned and sin brought ruin. So Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 8, For they that are of the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit they mind the things of the Spirit. One of the things that happens when you give your life to Christ is spiritually you begin to understand and to hear and to, and, and to look into God's Word. God begins to speak to you. God begins to comfort you. He begins to lead you. To be carnally minded is his death. Spiritually minded is life and peace. He said to the Corinthians, the natural man doesn't receive the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't, he can't know them. They're spiritually discerned. But when you get a new heart, you get new life. Why do you always talk about needing to be born again? Because else you're turned off. Sin has cut you off. When we receive Jesus, we're made new and alive spiritually. And then we're back to this, spirit, soul, and body. Okay, back to verse 8. <laughs> Religion, fig leaves, will always leave you painfully aware of the fact that you need to do more. You'll have done your best. It just won't be enough. There will be no peace. There will be no hope, which is why the gospel of Jesus is so awesome. For it is God reaching down to sinful men and doing for him in Jesus all that he needs to do to save us. Religion, you know, at, at best, has sinful men trying to reach out to God, and it's an impossible journey. Just can't get there from here. Fig leaves and all. Notice that God is not hiding from man here. Man is hiding from God because of sin. Man with his religion will still feel uneasy and afraid, seeking to flee from the Lord, knowing you, you don't have what it takes. So God has a plan to restore you if you'll confess and cry out to him for a new heart. Well, forced to face his sin, verse 10, as the Lord said, what have you done? The Lord, or where are you? He said, I heard your voice. I'm, I'm naked. I went for a run. <laughs> I, I heard. I was afraid. 
I was naked and I hid. That's, those were his responses, right? Seems the truth had, would have to be dragged out of him. I heard your voice. I was afraid. I was naked and I hid. Where was that honest, bright, straightforward young man that God had made and said, this is very good? The one who daily was in the garden tending to it for who knows how long. And who is the shifty kind of deceiving, <laughs> reluctant man that we meet here? What kept, kept him from saying, Lord, I, I disobeyed you. I didn't follow your ways. I'm a sinner no longer worthy to be called your son. Instead, what we see is what Jeremiah writes about later in chapter 17, that the heart is, is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked, and you can't really even come to know your own heart, the depths of sin. He goes in verse 11 and verse 12 from explanation. Explanation, I heard, I, I was afraid, I was naked and I hid. To excuse. First, blaming God. The woman that you gave to me. God, this is your fault. Notice this didn't happen when just the animals were around. This happened when Eve showed up. Second of all, he blamed her. The woman that you gave me, that's your fault, God. She gave it to me, that's her fault. And then this weak confession, so I did eat. That's logical, but not theological. True, but not really true. This is the official beginning of the passing of the buck. He's not the first or the last man to point out, well, he is the first, but not the last, to point his finger accusingly at God and to his wife for his own sinful behavior. And notice that Adam's <clears throat> blame shifting provided Eve an example to follow immediately. She was more straightforward, I think, than Adam. She said, <laughs> the serpent fooled me, deceived me, took me. She didn't say, it's my fault. She said, I was deceived. He lied to me. Well, what follows then is God's judgment. The sin or the sentence comes to each of them, comes to the serpent first, comes to Eve, and finally, God's judgment upon sin to Adam. They can be called the curse that came as a result of sin, the, the sentence that is imposed. Verse 14, to the devil, the Lord said to the servant, serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all of the cattle and more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers, she shall, he shall bruise your head even as you bruise his heel. To Satan, the Lord literally said, this means war. I don't know how the serpent got around before, but he would now crawl around in his belly in the dust for the rest of his life for his wickedness. Of Satan himself, God asks no questions. doesn't interrogate him just delivers his verdict against him, declares war upon him, uh, and Adam and Eve get to hear the very first prophecy and promise of a future hope for man. God would put enmity. The word enmity is the word for hatred. It is the, the Hebrew word to, to hate. I will put hatred between you and the woman, 
generations of enmity between the devil and man. The devil has always hated man, and now man would hate him back and seek God for deliverance from him. Additionally, God said, I will put division, if you will, or separation between your seed and hers. <clears throat> Satan has no children per se, but he has followers that are children as much as those who turn to the Lord become his children by faith. And though Eve would become a deliverer, uh, Jesus would come through a woman, the seed personified. He is what we read here. Her seed is a, a hint at the virgin birth of the Lord. You know, and as well as most of us, I think, bi biologically, a woman carries an egg, a man provides a seed. In every case ever, except for in the case of Jesus being born. Then we read Isaiah chapter 6, 9, verse 6, unto us a child is born, but also unto us a son is given. And so Paul, I think, writes to the Galatians, when the fullness of time come, God brought forth his son made of a woman under the law. So the results are given here. I will put an enmity between your children and the seed of the woman, the, the Savior who is coming. And the results are clearly, he shall bruise your head while you bruise his heel. The war is coming. Both comings of Jesus are included here. The bruising of Satan's head is coming yet. He, his dominion will be crushed. His triumph will, or the Lord's triumph will outshine the tragedy of Satan's hatred for man. But in the process of saving us, the enemy will bruise the heel of the seed of Jesus there at the cross, bringing salvation and deliverance to us. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity, the chastisement of the, our peace upon him by his stripes were healed. Let me recommend a book to you that are students and would like to kind of carry this forward. There was a book written several years ago by Donald Barnhouse, and it's called The Invisible War. And he clearly lays out, and it's a really well-done book, this war between God as he announces Satan's doom and his head that would be crushed for good. If I was to uh, tell you tonight, I'm going to crush your head after the service. You might do a couple of things, get ready for me, or seek to take me out, run or fight back. You're going to have two choices. The enemy didn't run, he fights back. You will see it in the scriptures of Genesis and, and, and ahead. Cain will, kill, Cain will kill Abel, his the righteous son. Satan makes the word so evil that God has to all but destroy it. Only eight souls are saved in the flood. One family, if you will, carrying that seed. Esau tries to kill Jacob. The Pharaoh tries to destroy every male child. Saul makes it his lifetime ambition to wipe out King David. Haman comes along to exterminate all of the Jews that ever lived. Herod tr tries to go after the babies of Bethlehem to get Jesus. And then, you know, he turns on the church. And we will certainly read that towards the end of the scriptures. If you want to get a very clear picture of anti-Semitism from the Bible standpoint, that it is not just prejudice, but it is a satanic form of the worst kind, it might be worthwhile reading that book. It's well written, and I think you'll learn a lot from it. In Revelation chapter 12, we will read of the woman, Israel, 
who brings forth her seed, the male child, Jesus, that was going to crush Satan's head. Uh, and again, it stirs him to war. In fact, you will read about him, about her fleeing to the wilderness where God keeps her for three and a half years, and that there's a war in heaven with Michael and the angels, and they toss Satan out for good, and he can't prevail against them, and this great dragon is cast to the earth, and uh, it's really the beginning of the end for him. But there's war that God declares here in the garden, that God is going to deliver man from him, but it's going to cost him his life and the sacrifice of his son. Here, the earth takes on kind of a, a, a great significance because the, the, the mystery of iniquity is settled once and for all here as God deals with the enemy. From war, verse 16, to, war, to woe, we read in verse 16, to the woman, the Lord says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you'll bring forth children and secondly, your desire will be to your husband. He shall rule over you. There was war. Now there's woe. And woe is for Eve, the sorrow, primarily in the area of childbearing and child raising. The word for sorrow here is the Hebrew word for, for um, pain or for labor, sometimes translated toil. There would be a problem in that Greatest of all gifts, bearing forth children that we've been done through sorrow and through pain. Second of all, there would be a subservience. The headship of Adam, by the way, if you go back to chapters 1 and 2, and if you go forward to the New Testament, was something that God devised. Men and women, regardless of what you hear on the news today, are made differently, with different callings, with different gifts. We need each other. We are perfectly made for the work that God has attached for us to do and planned for us to do. But, but Adam's oversight for Abe and his care for her was seen with a joy. There was a perfect relationship. Things went fine. Adam wasn't domineering. Eve wasn't threatened. They took their places. And only as Eve stepped out from the covering of her husband and he didn't lead as he should was this problem of sin introduced. But after sin, something would happen. Eve would begin to desire a word that literally means to fight for a, her husband's place. She doesn't want to be ruled. She doesn't want to be led. She wants to re reign for herself. And contrary to God's creation and purpose, she desires to, over, you know, to move away from that covering that God had made her husband to be. The word desire, more often than not, is translated rule. If you go to chapter uh, verse uh, chapter. 4 verse 7, you will read the same, the same thing. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If not, you, uh, if you do not do well, sin will lie at your door, and its desire is for you, but you have to rule over it. In other words, it wants to dominate your life. The problem with marriage is the fall, and this subservient kind of issue and roles and all. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 gives us the solution. If men and women get saved and they take their rightful place, you can reverse the curse in your home. And you can see the goodness that God has. God has put a husband to be responsible. He kept Adam responsible for Eve's uh, transgression, if you will. He, he had to take blame, though he tried to blame her. So sin would bring this 
competitiveness and the selfishness and this loss of role, which today in the world is really being worked at to try to move it away altogether. So first, war to Satan, woe to Eve, but to Adam, the judgment is work. Notice in verse 17, then to Adam, the Lord said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, he listened to his wife, not to the Lord. He didn't lead. He, he stepped out of his place. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat of the herbs of the field. In the sweat of your brow you'll eat bread until you return to the ground. For you were taken out of it. For dust you are. To dust you shall return. War, woe, and work. The ground would be cursed because of Adam. What was once a joy, go and tend the garden, that's what the Lord had said, will now be unrewarding toil and unrelenting terror. You're going to work all your life to get food into your belly, and then you're going to die. There's nothing permanent. This is a constant battle. The thorns and the thistles, they will return year after year. In fact, if you go to the New Testament, Jesus came to die and on his head, a crown of thorns, symbolic of what had been produced upon the earth due to the sin of Adam. To this day, sweat and labor and death await every man. And yet there's this promise. So the judgment to the serpent and the promise to man, the woe to Eve in stepping out from her place, the woe to Adam for not taking his responsibility. And so we get to the last little portion here, hopeful portion. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin, clothing them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now let us put out his hand. Let, let he put out, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and he placed the cherubim at the east side of Eden and a flaming sword turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. <coughs> now, Verse 20 is to me very encouraging because the Lord had promised that all would die and yet Adam turns around and calls his wife life giver. <coughs> As an act of confession of faith that God would deliver them for life, Adam said, my wife, her, her name is life giver. There in the garden, verse 21, God covered the sin of Adam and Eve. And in Eden, blood is shed for the first time. Must have been horrible if they had to watch because everything was so good before. It was an illustration of the cost Calvary would ultimately be. <clears throat> we are told in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, nobody can be forgiven of their sin. So here's one animal, a lamb for each of them, covered in lamb's wool. One day soon enough, one lamb's blood would be shed 
for the household at Passover. Later on still, one lamb would be killed on the Day of Atonement for the, for the sins of the nation, Yom Kippur. Later, one lamb would be slain for the sins of the world. One nation, one family, one individual, one world, Jesus has come to save. With that, God's activeness, activity is seen in the government of, of man. He drives Adam and Eve from the garden in which stood the tree of life. Because what would have happened if they would have eaten from the tree of life in their sinful condition? They would have forever been locked into a life separated from God. That tree will appear in several places. You can look it up for yourself. But needless to say, God in his love for man did, want, did not want us you know, locked into the guilt and to the penalty of sin with the inability to die. It would have been incapable of dying. So to keep them from tampering, he placed a cherubim, a, a, a very highly exalted angel, those that are found around the throne of God, to protect the entry to the garden until the flood came, altered the face of the earth, and this flaming sword that moved back and forth kept Adam and Eve and their children from total disaster. Because God had yet to lose man. He wasn't going to lose man forevermore. The tree of Calvary still calls us. The fig leaves can't help you. So a tragic chapter for sure. And unfortunately, everything we run into after this is going to be a direct result of this chapter. It's, it, it was the worst day in history for sure when man fell and sin was born. Next week, we'll well, I don't know if it's going to cheer up for you. Next week, it's still no charity. <laughs> but read ahead anyway, would you, as we continue to ask the Lord to teach us his heart and his ways. <clears throat> Father, thank you tonight as we sit together that you are so interested in us knowing your heart. We, we, we look at this story here in just a very short amount of verses, and we, we realize that, Lord, Satan's devices have not changed in all of these years. What caused him to fall is what he uses to try to trip us up. We see your heart, Lord, towards sinfulness, your warning to us, your call to obedience, and your promise to deliver us from our sin. We see Adam and Eve instinctively know what sin was, even though maybe they hadn't heard the word. They were immediately tried to hide from God, but that didn't work. They tried to blame one another, and that didn't work. They had to face the music as God was powerful over all, and yet they were left with this amazing promise that one day the Lord would, would deliver as he put enmity between the seed of the enemy, his followers, and the seed, her seed, that he would bruise the head of the, of the snake, even though in so doing his heel would be bruised. That there would be a cost, but the outcome was never in doubt. So, Lord, how thankful we are today that we know where sin comes from. We know what it seeks to do. And we, we are clearly able to see an enemy in, in his tactics that would appeal to our flesh. What we need is to be born again so that your spirit would take top spot in our lives, top billing, that he would be the one that would speak to us, that our flesh would submit to the leading of the spirit, to the, to 
to the word of God, that our, our minds would be renewed, but that our heart would be made new first, born of the Spirit, born again. If tonight you're not born again, there's no way you win this battle. One day you stand before God in judgment, and there's no hope for you without a new heart, a new, without a new birth. Jesus came so that you could be born again. He said it to Nicodemus. you got to be born again, Nicodemus. You see, what the enemy had destroyed back in the garden, God seeks to now make right as he gives us a new heart. <laughs> it's a spiritual birth. It's a spiritual operation. Your eyes will be open. Your heart will be open. Your, your the capability to love as God loved you will be reinstored and reinstated. And you'll find yourself free to serve the Lord, to be able to say no to sin and yes to him. Is it a battle? Sure, it'll always be a battle. The flesh is never going to cooperate because one day we're going to get a new body, but my mind can be transformed and my spirit can be made new. It's only the redemption of this body that now awaits for me to be whole. But while I'm in this flesh, my victory is submitting to my God and relying upon his spirit. If you're not born again tonight, come and pray with one of our pastors that you would be born of the spirit before you go home. If you're listening online, please follow those links down in the description box as God is speaking to you wherever you are tonight around the world and follow that link to where you can go and begin to read of God's promise to, to change you from the inside out. <clears throat> Adam and Eve were covered with the, with the blood of an animal's covering. A life given for their life. Their tragic sin covered. Kofar. Not, for, not washed away, but covered. But that cleansing was coming as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was headed their way. Be sure you're born again. Not religious, not fig leaves, not guilt over sin, oh, I know, I was naked. But a hunger to be forgiven, washed, to let God make you new. He'll do that if you ask. He'll do it tonight. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at Patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Morningstar CC.